be continuing our uh, series in the book of Acts. And yes, I have labeled this one uh, a tale of a brother and sister. And you will see as we go through what, uh, at least I hope you will see, why that is the title for today's message. We are uh, enjoying the, the book of the Acts of the Apostles. We have uh, the, the three brothers that put together this series, sort of the outline for it, they came up with this um, outline or this sort of what, what the book is all about in a nutshell. And so what we have is the book of the Acts continues the story of King Jesus as he establishes his kingdom. We see the coming of the Holy Spirit, enabling and assisting Jesus' followers to embrace the Father's mandate which is to testify to Jews and non-Jews from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth about Jesus' salvation through his death and resurrection. And that is a great summary of the book of Acts. Now here at Rosemount Bible Church, and for you and I as individuals, we are also called on to continue the story, to be those that embrace the Father's mandate. To testify to Jews and non-Jews from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth about Jesus' salvation through his death and resurrection. And my hope today is that we really get this sense that the story continues in us. That the next chapter is being written. You see, we have discussed already, and this gives you a bit of a summary for some of you that haven't I've been here all the weeks we've been uh, speaking about this, that Luke is a master teacher. And what he does is he, one of his styles, one of the things you see repeatedly, is that he introduces a player, then he moves on, talks about other things, and then he comes back and takes up that. And we see it with Barnabas, with Stephen, with Phil, Philip, with Saul, uh, or Paul. And what I have added this week is... He's doing it with you and I. Not Luke, but the Spirit of God. And I would like to suggest to every one of us that knows and follows Jesus in the room today that you have already been introduced into the story. So Acts 29, Acts ends at chapter 28 in your Bibles, but in Acts chapter 29, that next chapter, that your name has been introduced. You are part of the story that is being written of the church of Jesus Christ and of the gospel of the grace of God going out into all the world. Now, you may be at a stage in your life where you have been introduced, but now the story is focusing on some others, and you're in a quieter position in your life. Or you may be at a point in your life where... The story is being written about you. And both are good. You and I need both in our lives. What we struggle with often is we wish we were at a different part. So oftentimes, if you're in a spot where the, 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 it's not really being written about you right now, the tendency is to wish that it was. But then when you are at a point where it is being written about you, now you're wishing for some quiet, or you're wishing for some, the spotlight to be taken off you or something. It's really funny how we're wired. But the reality is, 
You and I, who know and love and follow Jesus, are part of the story. And for those of you that might be here today or listening and you do not yet know and love Jesus, you are invited into the story. You are invited to become a part of this amazing thing that God is doing that he started 2,000 years ago when the Church of Jesus Christ was formed and that has now gone out into all the world. You can be part of that story and it is, I can assure you, it is the best story in the world to be a part of. It is awesome to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I invite you, if you have not yet begun that journey, to start. And the Holy Spirit, the scribe of the great story, will introduce you into the story. And then he will write about you at the right time as things go on. So, where are we in this big story? Well, you've seen, some of you that have been here week after week, you have seen this slide before. It's got a lot of letters on it, but I've put a big red marker there so you can see where we are in the story. So it started out in chapters 1 to 5 of Acts with the gospel reaching the Jews in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem, very centered there. By chapter 6, there were proselytes, there were people from other nations that were believing the gospel. In chapter 7, Stephen makes his awesome defense and gives a complete outline of how this story is really a continuation or a part of the greater story that God is doing in terms of the whole history of mankind. And then you have in chapter 8, and we're going to talk a little bit about this. Uh, if, you're very, if you've got a photographic memory, you'll see that I stuck in here for this week. Samaritans and an Ethiopian accept the gospel in chapter 8. By chapter 9, we have enjoyed last week about Saul being converted and then disappearing off the scene for a while. And now we are here at this point where, meanwhile, Peter continues. So, we're in this sort of, Paul's been introduced, we saw, saw this great story of his conversion. Now, Paul disappears, and meanwhile, and we pick up the story of Peter. This is taking place still in a very small area of Jerusalem and the surrounding area. What is going to happen is the gospel is going to explode through the, the travels and journeys of the Apostle Paul, that one that had the dramatic conversion that we talked about last week, and he's going to travel all over the North, Eastern, Mediterranean Sea. He is going to be going to a lot of the Roman Empire with the gospel. But that's for Paul. That's, we're not there yet. What we did learn last week was that so there were some key things that we'll continue the journey on this week. So Saul and Ananias, they, be, they became brothers in the family of God when Paul or Saul was converted. Remember I talked about last week how you may have an awesome conversion testimony, you may have a story that would be great, or you might have a story that is pretty boring. And both are okay. I tried to get you all excited last week about telling you my story. About, and then Katie tried to correct me afterwards because I think it was, I, I've got it confused a little bit, which tells you how bad I am at telling my own story. But it was basically, 
that we were doing like cleaning the garage or cleaning the basement at our house when I was like seven or eight years old. And I decided it was time for me to become a Christian. So I just left the family cleaning. I ran to a private place. I think now, as Katie remembers, that was a bathroom. And I, I, there were six kids in the house, and it was a small house. So there was, you, you, it was hard to find privacy. But I went somewhere and got down on my knees, asked Jesus to be my Savior, and went right back and kept going, cleaning whatever we were doing as a family, and never told a soul. And in all the counts everywhere, in that wherever people have counted how many people accepted Jesus as their Savior, I'm not in one of them. So, that's my testimony. Not very exciting. But what we learned is, with, and we compared Paul or Saul to Peter... So Saul has this dramatic conversion testimony. Peter, not so much. We don't really know. He started following Jesus, and by Matthew 16, he declares, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, but we have no idea of when he actually decided in his heart that he was going to love and follow Jesus. So it doesn't matter your story or the time of your conversion or how you can recount it exactly. What matters is, do you love and follow Jesus? That's the important thing. And that's what makes us Christians. So we learned that last week, the importance of having that personal encounter with the living Christ. What I'm not sure I covered well last week is that the best way to win others to become followers of Jesus is to share what Jesus has done in your life. That is super important. And Paul, you will see in it, as we keep going through the book of Acts, Two other times, it's recorded. He probably told it many other times. But twice, we actually get a retelling of his conversion story in the book of Acts. And Paul was like the ultimate intellectual. So if a guy that could argue anything and debate anything and go into all the theology that you could possibly imagine, if he still realized how important it was to actually tell the story of how God had changed his life, then we see for us that is certainly the case. We also found what was, uh, what was fun to see with the little guy in the story last week, Ananias, is that he said, yes, Lord, and then he said, but, Lord. And for those of us that know and follow Jesus, that is like the story of our lives. We say, yes, Lord, and then we say, but, Lord. So Ananias said, yes, Lord, when the Lord told him he had something he wanted him to do. And then when the Lord told him, I want you to go and visit Saul, he says, but Lord. So let's make sure, those of us that know and follow Jesus, that it's yes, Lord, and that we try not to follow it so much with a but Lord. And all of us can be like Barnabas. Barnabas was the guy that just sided up with Saul when he was first a Christian and helped him and encouraged him. And Barnabas became known as the son of encouragement. So now today, we are going to look at these stories about Peter interacting with regular kind of folks, and we're going to be looking for six different things, and I'm going to check at the end and see if we covered all six of them. So, in Peter's encounters, and as the church does its thing, the early church, as the brothers and sisters live out their faith together, they encounter prejudice, they deal with pride, they deal with power, poverty, prayer, prerogative, that's cool, eh? And there's one more that I discovered afterwards. And Keith's like a master on the PowerPoint, so he can probably even stick it in. But it is philanthropy. 
So we've actually got seven, which is the perfect number. Look at that. It's going in. It's going in as we, as we have it there. All right. So we will, we will look for these. And just to help you a little bit, if, because we're not all, English is not all our first language, and some words are bigger than others. So the word prerogative is, first of all, I would not have spelt it right, because I don't say it with the R right after the P. That's like prerogative, and I say prerogative, but I'm not sure now which is right because of that, whether you're supposed to say that R or not. But this concept of prerogative is a right or a privilege exclusive to a particular individual or class. Like, this is my right, this is my prerogative. And the example could be owning an automobile was still the prerogative of the rich. Okay, so that's how prerogative, so just think about that because we're going to see it uh, in our story. Okay, so... Remember the big map that showed all that what's going to happen as the gospel is going to go out into the whole world with Paul. You will see that in the next slide right there. But the next one afterwards, the next after that shows us, it's our first verse, and it shows us the much more narrowed focus that is still where the gospel is going out during our story. So Paul has not yet gone out into the whole Roman Empire. Right now, it is still focused, and so what you see in the first verse of what we're reading today is the church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord and with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. It also grew in numbers. Now, when you look at that map, just to give you a little bit of perspective, way down at the south, you will see Beersheba, if you can read it. That's down in kind of the faint tan color, right down at the, at the bottom. And all the way up to the top is the Sea of Galilee, over to the right at the top. Well, that full distance is like going from Montreal to Quebec City. Okay, just to give you an idea. So at the time that we're at this place we're at in this story, the gospel is still quite limited. Picture in terms of the whole world, and then picture what we're actually talking about here is an area about the size of from Montreal to Quebec City, and not square. Like that's actually the longest part. It's it's narrower than that going east to west. The church at this time, some some things happened that caused it to have a time of peace after they had had early persecution, and it was really two things. The the first one that we talked about last week was because the worst perpetrator of persecution in the early church had just been saved. So sort of the ringleader of all that was going on, all the hatred against the Christians, he became a Christian. So bingo, that was one huge uh, change for the early church. The second one was that Herod Agrippa's authority expanded. So there was a political change that actually helped the church. I won't go into all of that because that will take too much time, but it, just to say that the politics changed and that was actually a help to the church at that time. I suggest that similarly in the church, in the different parts of the world today, there are things that sometimes allow there to be times of peace in the church, and there's other times when there are times of difficulty. 
And sometimes it is the politics of the country, of the nation, or of the area. And sometimes it is within the church itself. Or it is, it is what God's actually doing amongst the people. So recognize that right now in Canada, we are in a time of peace. But there are clouds on the horizon. And we don't know how long we are going to be in a time of peace. I heard a talk just two days ago where a man was speaking about the beauty of the church in times of persecution. And it really hit me because I have the privilege of traveling in many parts of the world and actually meeting with and being with Christians that sometimes are in persecution. And it is a beautiful thing to see how the Spirit of God works and how God molds and changes us in times of persecution. However, when we are in times of peace, we can be thankful. And we are even told by Paul to pray that we will for kings and for all those in authority so that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. So this was a time of peace. The church became stronger. They lived in the fear of the Lord. They were encouraged by the Holy Spirit and they grew in numbers. So this was a time of blessing. And it is a challenge for us as a church to look at these things um, internally for us as a church. In fact, are we at peace? And then, are we becoming stronger? Are we building each other up in our faith? Are we living in the fear of the Lord? There's a tendency in the current generation of Christians, those that follow Jesus, to not talk about the fear of the Lord so much. But it's very real, and it's from the beginning to end of Scripture, that there needs to be an awesome respect, an awesome appreciation for who God is. After all, He is God, and He deserves our respect. He deserves a holy and a reverent fear. We are... Are we being encouraged by the Holy Spirit? He, are we giving him the liberty to work in us and amongst us as Christians? And the final challenge is, are we growing in numbers? Are we reaching lost people? Are we, in fact, bringing others into the faith? And that's something that needs to be a challenge for each one of us as Christians. We are told, we are, we are encouraged to be part of the story that God is writing, and that story is a story of the gospel going out into all the world. All right, so we talked a little bit about Samaria, and that is planted in our verse, that this first verse. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Now, this is a, an amazing thing, because this, the fact that Samaria is included at this point shows that God was, by the Holy Spirit, shattering prejudices. Now, if you go back and look up the story of the Samaritans, you, you find it in 2 Kings 17. We won't turn there. But what you find is, it was a very dark time in Israel's history when the ten tribes had split off from the two tribes. There was division. There was a total turning away from God. And the king of Assyria had had taken the ten tribes into captivity and then replaced 
a lot of them with people from other nations. So these Samaritans in this area became those that were very mixed race and had tons of evil practices and idolatry worship and sacrificing of children and all sorts of horrific things that had come in through, the, through what had happened historically. And so in the setting that we have here in Bible times, the Jewish people tried very hard to avoid the Samaritans. The Samaritans, in turn, by the way, they, they, they uh, gave the love back. They actually, if a Jew was traveling from Galilee down into, uh, into say, to go to Jerusalem, okay, they wouldn't even give them a place to stay. Like, they could walk through, but they couldn't stop. And it's quite a journey. So this was, like, there was no love lost between the, 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 the Jews and the Samaritans at this time. You, Jesus, it's fascinating because Jesus meets us where we are and works with us. If you actually look at, um, again, we won't, I'll just reference these. In Matthew chapter 10, you can see it on the screen, Jesus actually said to the 12 disciples early in their ministry, don't go to Samaria, go only to Israel. So it's, it's a fascinating thing to think about at that, at that point. But then watch. A little later on in his ministry, from what we can tell chronologically, they were going from, from Galilee to Jerusalem, and they got no hospitality from the Samaritans. And that's in Luke chapter 9. But when you look at, it in, when you look at the amazing story in John, and oftentimes when we read the story in John, we don't really capture the whole setting of it. Jesus, it says he had to go through Samaria, and then it, he meets this woman at a well in Samaria, and he has one of the deepest theological discussions that Jesus had with anybody in, during his ministry that is recorded. He had with this woman of Samaria. So you think about what Jesus is shattering there, or beginning to shatter. He's talking to a woman, the woman had had five husbands. The woman was now living common law. And Jesus was a Jew, and she was a Samaritan. Okay? You think about this, what Jesus was doing there, and it's like he's starting to shake the whole thing. When you continue to follow the story, uh, which um, we had in Acts chapter 8, Philip was the evangelist that God then used after the church was formed, to now go to Samaria and not just reach one woman. Okay, he went to Samaria, and there was like revival time in Samaria. There were like hundreds, thousands of people getting saved in Samaria. So the Spirit of God like broke down this prejudice and said like, no, history does not need to define us. These are all people that Jesus died for, and we are going to shatter this now. So he starts it with one woman, but breaks all the molds in John chapter 4, and then he shatters it with Philip in Acts chapter 8. What is really sweet is Peter and John have to go and meet with the Samaritans for them to receive the Holy Spirit. That is crazy, but it is, it's, it's a God thing, because... If you know your Bibles, you will know that Scripture clearly teaches us after we're saved, we receive the Holy Spirit. 
So those of us that know and love Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. But God did an amazing thing here as the church was being built. It was Philip the evangelist that went and reached the Samaritans, and a whole lot of them were saved. But then he sent two guys that needed to experience this, and he wanted the church to be unified. So Peter and John had to go from Jerusalem to Samaria, and they had to meet with them there in order for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. Isn't that, like, amazing? Can you, can you picture Peter or John? John's the one that wrote. I, I, you wonder, like, as he's writing John 4, how is this coming together for him? Because he'd actually been there. He wrote the Gospel of John much later. So as he's writing John 4, he has, he's remembering that time when he went to Samaria and he saw the results of this and he saw that the Gospel was exploding there and that the Holy Spirit had come and indwelt them. The challenge for us, folks, is what are our prejudices? What are the ones, where are the places that we hold back? God may be waiting to do a huge work, and you and I, by our prejudices, by our preconceived ideas, by our history, by some of the experiences that we have had, we can be held back from the full liberty of the gospel that God wants us to enjoy. But let me just declare it here today. You and I are all equal in the sight of God. There is no curse on your nation. There is no curse on your whatever it is that you might see. There is nothing on your family. There is nothing that the Spirit of God does not break through with the power of the gospel. And he did it here to the glory of God, and it was amazing. I had the privilege, just in February of this year, to go to a very dark place in Africa. I went to where there are a 500,000 uh, people that are very despised, and they are despised by their, many of their fellow Africans, and they are called the pygmies. And... These people have been given very little service, very little uh, opportunity to hear about the gospel because of what, how they are seen and how they are perceived. They are, there are prejudices against them. Now, I'm going to show you a picture here. And when you're a speaker, you never want to show a picture that puts you up as the speaker, okay? But let me tell you why I feel free to show this picture. Because I am totally the wrong guy to be here. Okay? That's why. Okay? The only reason I'm in this picture is because if you've heard of the word ex officio, it means by reason of office. Okay? So the only reason I'm in this picture is because of my role in Youth for Christ, which meant that they wanted me there. But I had absolutely nothing to do with the reaching these folks, with the initiative that went into this, with the prayer meetings that happened, with the planning that happened, with all that happened in order for the, this, um, this is a school, an international school that is being uh, built there so that these folks, it's a Christian school, part of the Kigali Christian Schools, so that the young people there and the children there can hear the gospel, can get an education, and can, uh, can grow up now being respected and appreciated in their, um, in their culture. But they knew as we're chatting and as these folks are, are this, the fellow right facing me on the right 
he is the mayor of the area, and he is also a believer. And he and I chatted about the need to shatter prejudices with the gospel and how this was one little spark of doing that. So, by the way, um, when I head to glory, you don't need to, there doesn't need to be a tombstone or anything, you, because I've already got it. It's, it's right there. It's, it's in, in Africa. So, brothers and sisters, let's shatter whatever prejudices we have, whatever things you think, that's not somebody I really want to reach, or that's somebody that I would really prefer not to, or that's whatever. Let's remember, God has broken through all of that with the power of the gospel, and let's be part of what God is doing. All right, the story continues with a brother and a sister. They are brothers and sisters in Jesus. They are not biological brothers and sisters. So the first one in, in verse 32, Meanwhile, Peter traveled from place to place, and he came down to visit the believers in the town of Lydda. There he met a man named Aeneas, or Aeneas, who had been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, roll up your sleeping mat. And he was healed instantly. Then the whole population of Lydda and Sharon saw Aeneas walking around, and they turned to the Lord. You know what I love about this? This is one where no nationality is mentioned. We have no idea whether this guy is Jew, Gentile, black, white, Asian, what he is. We, we, we have no idea. Okay, we just know he was a guy that was sick, and Peter comes to him. It doesn't tell us if he was a big guy in the church or nobody in the church. It doesn't tell us anything. All we know is where he lived, what his name was, and that he had been bedridden for eight years, and Peter comes along and says the words, and he is healed. This touches on an interesting subject for us in the story being written. You and I, remember, Acts 29. You've been introduced, now you're living out your story. And one of the things that comes up often in the Christian story is healing. And we struggle with healing. So let's look, first of all, at this story of healing. This man was paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. God took a situation where there was nothing secretive, there was nothing hidden, there was nothing vague about this man's sickness. Everybody knew he'd been bedridden for eight years. There was, it was super clear that this man was physically broken. And then Peter declares to him, not taking any credit to himself, you notice his words, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your sleeping mat. All the credit went to Jesus. There was no pride in Peter in this. There was no exaltation of Peter in this. He was pointing to Jesus. And this man was miraculously healed. We see the purpose of the healing in that the whole population of Lydda and Sharon saw Aeneas walking around and they turned to the Lord. And therein we see most often in Scripture, what the purpose was when there was a healing that happened. It was for the gospel to go out, for the glory of God to be revealed, and so that lost people would come to know him. Now, way, way, way back in Exodus, we have a verse that says, For I am the Lord Jehovah who heals you. And this is where we get the title, Jehovah Rapha. 
and it's one of the titles of Jehovah. We have it lovely expressed in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Isn't this a great verse? The only trouble is it doesn't always happen. So it says like your youth is renewed like the eagles. Ed, you experiencing that? Let me tell you, Ed, what happened to me just recently. So I think I'm still a pretty strong guy, and I think everybody should see and appreciate that. So I go into a store that is where they sell uh, equipment for like lawn and garden and stuff like that, okay? And I'm buying two new chainsaws, one for my house and one for our country place. And so I pick out the chainsaws that I want, and I walk up to this you know, kind of middle-aged guy, maybe, okay, maybe he was a little younger than me, like maybe 25 or something. And he looks at me and he says, sir, before I ring these up, would you mind just putting them down and showing me if you can start them or not? Can you imagine how I felt? I was so mad, I wanted to throw them at them, but I probably couldn't. I, I, I'm very proud of the fact that I could. But the very fact that I'm proud of the fact that I could shows that this verse about your youth getting renewed like the eagles, okay, like, you know, we're getting old. We all, we, all, we kind of, we, yeah, we get more fragile. So what is this all about? Well, let me plant a few things here for you to just think about. You and I are part of a broken creation. And when Adam sinned and creation fell, Creation fell. And what came with that is, is the aging and death. And that happens to all of us. And just to be crystal clear, when you become a Christian, you get a new spiritual life in Christ. But your body keeps right on aging. Just so that we all understand that. Okay? So once in a while... God chooses, as he did here, to do a miraculous healing for his glory and often and usually for the spread of the gospel. Some would suggest that this doesn't happen anymore, that it was only part of the early church. I don't like to say that. What I simply like to say is, look at it biblically and look at what happened and look at the purpose for it happening and that it was clear and it was distinct and it was with a person that was undoubtedly broken before they were healed. But oftentimes, you and I experience healing. We do it every day. I was talking to a person this week that has no relationship with the Lord at all, but spoke about how they had been injured, and they just naturally talked about how many weeks the doctor had said until it would heal. Think about it. If your car... If the alternator goes on your car, how many weeks will it be until it works again, if you just leave it? Never. You and I have bodies that heal. And guess what? They were created by Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. So you and I experience his healing all the time. 
in our lives as we go along. We experience that physical healing. And we know that and we thank the Lord for it, at least hopefully we do, those that know and follow Jesus. But there are many times when healing doesn't come as we would want. And Paul gives us a great example. And Paul was one of those that had the gift of healing. He, could, he spoke and people were healed. But he says here in, in the, the third bullet that's up there on the screen, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So we have to be okay with that, folks, brothers and sisters. God is glorified often in the weakness that we carry. And while we pray for healing, and we are encouraged to pray for healing, it is not to stop. We can pray for healing, but we come under the sovereign will of God. So let's be confident in Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. Let's recognize and thank him for the healing that we experience every day. But let's not be discouraged if there are those that we pray for, whether it's ourselves or others, and God does not choose to heal them. He is sovereign, he is God, and he decides in each situation. The next part of the story, now we have a sister. And it says in verse 36, there was a believer in Joppa named Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. She was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. I love that verse. It's like you just get this nutshell like you could put that right on her tombstone. She was always doing kind and helping the poor. That's like, like the summary of her life. About this time, she became ill and died. Her body was washed for burial and laid in an upstairs room. But the believers had heard that Peter was nearby at Lydia, so they sent two men to beg him, please come as soon as possible. So Peter returned with them, and as soon as he arrived, they took him to the upstairs room. The room was filled with widows who were weeping and showing him the coats and other clothes that Dorcas had made for them. But Peter asked them to all leave the room. Then he knelt and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, get up, Tabitha. And she opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Then he called in the widows and all the believers, and he presented her to them alive. The news spread throughout the whole town, and many believed in the Lord. Notice again, the purpose of it, what God was doing here, many believed in the Lord. The news spread. And this was, again, a clear situation. This lady was dead. I love the line where it even says, Peter, it says then, turning to the body, he said. Okay, that's at least in the, in the NLT. I didn't, I didn't look how it says it in the other translations. But it's like, there's no question here. He's talking to a corpse. He's talking to somebody who has died. And yet he prays, and then he miraculously, giving the credit to the Lord, because it, it says that he prayed before he did it, he has her, he raises her to life. It's like phenomenal. So let's look at just a couple of points here, and we'll see some of these P words coming through here that we talked about. So notice that she was a woman that was always doing kind things for others and helping others. Notice that when she's sick and died, that the message that's sent to Peter is come as soon as possible. I was fascinating reading this and studying it because like the other miracles before this, since, Peter, since Jesus had gone back to heaven, 
they were used to, they were seeing healings. But these people had faith, even though she had died. They still wanted Peter to come. And you wonder if that like harkens back to when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead or what they were thinking about. There, was, there were a few raisings from the dead that Jesus did. But this is, you wonder, what were they thinking? What gave them the faith to actually call for Peter even though she had already died? But there was, for sure, great faith here. Tabitha, I put on here is Gideon 2.0. So some of you remember the story of Gideon, how it was a time of terrible persecution in the land of Israel, and Gideon was hiding out, and he was just threshing wheat in a wine press, and he was using it to feed some of the people of God. So he was like this quiet dude, out of the way, doing his thing, just trying to help God's people. Well, here's Gideon 2.0. Her name is Dorcas, or Tabitha. And what is Tabitha doing? She's just doing what? Followers of Jesus do. You're just trying to help people. She's trying to show God's love in very practical ways. So she's kind to others, and she helps the poor. What's beautiful to see is the testimony of those that she had helped. They're weeping. They're showing the coats. There was a clear, tes clear testimony that she had here in terms of her life and what she had done. Remember, we're looking at the early church, and we're learning lessons from that. So, 15 years after this story happens, in the first chapter of Galatians, they have recognized now um, Saul and Barnabas as being their co-workers. And Saul, or Paul, and Barnabas are preaching mostly to the Gentiles. Peter, James, and John are continuing their work amongst the Jews. But... Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I was always, I had always been eager to do. So, here at RBC, we, we got to help the poor. We got to help those amongst us. We got to help those outside of the walls of our church. If we don't, we're not being like the early church. We're not being what this movement is all about that God started 2,000 years ago. It's practical. But it's also messy. I remember one time, I think I could tell this story, okay? Um, you're not supposed to tell things that make you, you know, whatever. But you'll just, I just got to tell you this one because it's really funny of how it, it's, it's helping the poor is messy. So Katie and I were at this people, these people's house in their, in their little apartment. And they had a broken fridge. And there was food being wasted and food, whatever. And it was just not a happy situation. And they didn't have any way to solve that. So Katie and I decide, we're going to get these people a new fridge. And so we do. Now, you know, being the modern whatever, all you have to do is call some appliance company, and they deliver the fridge, and they set it up or whatever. And it's great. It's wonderful. These folks have a new fridge. So a few months later, Katie and I are over hanging out with them again. Okay, And I happen to walk into the kitchen, and here's this old fridge running. <laughs> fridge running, OK? And I'm like, so I sort of asked, but tried to do it diplomatically. And well, they'd sold the new fridge. They didn't need a new fridge. And they had got another old fridge. Uh, guess what, brothers and sisters? If we are going to help the poor, OK? And some of us, are, we've all had different experiences. I, Katie and I have stories early in our life from when we were just married of how people helped us. 
Um, there was one guy in our church that uh, his wife was in the hospital, uh, and he um, went to use the washing and dryer that he hadn't used for, uh, very often, and it didn't work. So he called Sears and ordered a new washer and dryer. And they came, brought him, plugged those in, and they didn't work either. And it turned out to be a fuse. And so this guy actually sold us, as a poor young couple in the church, their washer and dryer, which was perfectly fine, for 50 bucks. And that's how we got our first washer and dryer. We need to help each other, but sometimes it's messy. And sometimes we'll be misunderstood or we'll do the wrong thing or whatever else. But guess what? The early church, they helped each other. They were kind to each other. They helped those who were poor amongst them. And even when it got messy, they still did it. That was part of the early church. And even when Peter and Paul disagreed on circumcision and I don't know what else. Peter says that Paul's stuff is hard to understand. What they did agree on is let's all help in terms of helping the poor. All right. So these are the things in the early church. And the last verse, don't worry, don't panic. I know it's two minutes to 12. But the last verse is really a short slide, and it says, And Peter stayed a long time in Joppa, living with Simon, a tanner of hides. And this has to do with prerogative, or the right to, something of privilege. The Apostle Peter. Think of the churches that are built after named Peter. Think of the gold in some of those churches. St. Peter, the, whatever, St. Peter this and St. Peter that, okay? Guess where Peter stayed? when he was in Joppa. Stayed with a guy that made shoes. Like, just a regular dude. You and I, brothers and sisters, we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. But we have no prerogative. The foxes have hold, the birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. You and I need to be comfortable hanging out and living life with each other. And there's huge blessing in doing that. Katie and I could tell you a few stories of some of the places we've stayed and the fun experiences we've had in this, in this work with Youth for Christ. And uh, they, wherever we go, they try to give us their best. But it is fun sometimes, but what a blessing. Uh, you and I need to be like Peter. Just hang out with each other, do life with each other, and not ever think of one or another as being above each other. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. So my wrap for today is if the chapter 29 is going to be written about you and me, our names have already been introduced. The author has already started it, just as he's done with these others, if you and I know and follow Jesus. But we are going to encounter prejudice. Remember the story of the Samaritans. Blast it apart. Let's get it out of our lives. Prejudice has no place in the body of Christ whatsoever. Pride, pride can kill us. Peter was so careful here in these stories. It's in the name of Jesus that he did the healing. It, he prayed before he raised Tabitha to life. You and I, brothers and sisters, are nothing apart from the grace of God. It is the power of the Holy Spirit enabling and assisting us, just as they did back then, just as is recorded in the book of Acts. It is only through his power that we can fulfill the Father's mandate. We need to help those that are poor, like just like um, we see with Tabitha or Dorcas in terms of what she was doing. We, need, we can pray for healing. We can pray and bring our requests to the Lord. But remember that he is sovereign. And let's thank the Lord for the healing that we do see and we do experience every day in our lives. And we have no prerogative. Our prerogative is our place in heaven. 
We have a right and a title to the place in heaven because Jesus has died for us. But here on earth, we are the followers of Jesus. So as Acts 29 is being written today, your name's already been introduced if you love and follow Jesus. Let's make sure that story gets written well. You and I won't be... Uh, I don't, maybe there's somebody amongst us, but for most of us, we won't be Saul's. We won't be Peter's. There'll be no church built after us. But if we can be Tabitha, if we can be Aeneas, if we can be Ananias, and just be a part of what God is doing in building his church, then to him be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for the examples. We thank you for the story that you have given us this early part of in the book of Acts. And Lord Jesus, may we, may we just each fulfill our part to your glory. Lord, it may be a part that is in public. It may be a part that is in private. There are different things that, are, that you are doing as the whole church of God is being built. And Lord Jesus, help us not to wish we had some other part, but help us to fully carry out what you have entrusted to us to do. May you be glorified, Lord Jesus, in each of our lives today. And Lord, we also pray that if there's somebody here or that's listening that still isn't part of the story, that they would believe that they would receive Jesus as their Savior today and that they would